MSK Talk YA now presents An Ember in the Ashes by Saba Tahir. M&K Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And it's season five on our show. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. I guess I knew we finished season four, but I hadn't actually said season five out loud. It feels much older. <laughs> yep. We're going to kindergarten. Woohoo. So we picked for our first series of the year, a series that we have wanted to read since we started the show so many years ago, we are reading An Ember in the Ashes by Saba Tahir. There are four books in this series, which is um, more than we usually do. Uh, this is a quadrology. So we mix things up a little bit for the uh, fifth year. We decided that instead of breaking up the books into two parts, we are going to read and discuss the entire book. Um, and we did this because we decided that we're going to be posting an episode every two weeks instead of every week, and this will allow us to read more more books this year. Yep. I mean, definitely we're open to feedback, so if everyone hates this and wants us to go back to half a book, we're open to that as well, but we thought we'd try it to keep the pace going with, with episodes every other week. And it's kind of nice from a us standpoint and scheduling to plan when to finish a book by instead of like stopping right. at an arbitrary spot in the middle, because sometimes we just literally open the book and we're like this looks about halfway <laughs> yeah and we have no idea what's going on at that point <laughs> yep so hopefully everyone is okay with that we are also going to try and structure our conversations a little bit better uh instead of it just being a freewheeling discussion we're gonna have some talking points that we hit along the way to hopefully make it a little bit more organized and easy to follow and again open to feedback so let us know if there's stuff that we're no longer doing that you'd love to hear us incorporate or things we should cut that we're trying now so let us know we love getting feedback from you guys and we're just trying some new stuff so yeah hopefully it works um okay so let's start talking about an ember in the ashes so let's talk about the world to start off with so we're in the martial empire is that what we call the whole world yeah that's what i would call it the martial empire it is a world that is based off of ancient rome we have a couple different groups of people, I would say. So our main character, Leia, she is or was part of the scholar people. Um, and she currently lives in Syrah, the capital of the scholar empire. But they were conquered by the marshals. So now uh, her life's not so great. Yeah. So the scholars, surprisingly, based on their name, were all about like education and learning and whatnot. And now that they've been conquered by the martial people who seem much more motivated by like uh, more traditional power in terms of like military strength and, and some of that stuff, at least the part that we've seen. And uh, mm -hmm. the other main character, Elias, Elias, is a mask, which is a group of intense fighters, I guess, <laughs> who've been raised from like the age of six at this school, this like academy for, for training them called Black Cliff Academy. Yep, it's a military academy. And like right off the bat, you do kind of get 
I knew that it was based on the social structure of ancient Rome before. And, and you do totally get that with the social classes. Like we have the, mm-hmm. the wealthy elites, like the patricians. And then we have the plebeians, I guess, who are like the free citizens. And then we have slaves who are the lowest class. And uh, we do see all of that come into play in this book. Leia is a slave of the scholar people she can't own property or attend school or anything and then yeah like you said Elias is kind of on the other side he's still I wouldn't say he's free by any means but he is um, an elite soldier training with this military academy (laughs) yeah and it was interesting because I actually feel like I didn't struggle with the fact that I didn't have a lot of details about the world, but as, as I was preparing for this section, I sort of feel like the world itself is still, there's still a lot that we could learn about it. It wasn't to the point where I'm like, I don't know what's going on or where we are because we were mostly focused around a few key points, but there's a map at the beginning of my book and I was looking at it and I was like, oh, we actually haven't been to, a, you know, we haven't even like touched on a lot of the world yet. So I'm curious to see how that gets further developed in the next three books. That's a good point because we know that Marin is uh, a nation that hasn't been ca- been captured yet, so they're not under the rule of the marshals. And we also know that society is kind of broken up into a few different classes. So like we have the scholars and then we have the mercators, the tribesmen, uh, and then the illustrians are like the upper class. So we still have, a, I feel like we still have more people to meet. Which is good because we have four books, but I would totally agree with you. Like, I got a good sense of the world just from this first book, but um, I think there's definitely going to be more to come in building it. Yep. And again, when we talk about some books that do more of a information dump, I didn't feel that way with this. Mm-hmm. Like, I do feel like the world was built in a way that, like, as the story unfolded, I was getting enough information, so I wasn't confused, but I didn't feel like people were just dumping stuff at me. I totally agree. Um, and I really liked the way the Black Cliff Military School was set up because that also mm-hmm. was like very regimented. And I, I think the author did like a great job of setting up like how militant and how orderly this place is because there's like all these ranks. There's like yearlings who are ages 6 to 11. There are fivers who are 11 to 14. And then the ones who survive that period get their masks and then they train for four more years as cadets. And then two more years as skulls, so it's like a ton of training goes into this, uh, which felt intense but believable. And it's like this great honor, and surviving it sort of gives you a lot of influence, it feels like. Yeah. But to be in the school for this long is like literally torture. Like, I mean, like none of the students are like skating by, doesn't matter who your family is. Like, yes, it's an honor in one sense but even the food is bad like they don't like nothing about it sounds good (laughs) yeah I mean I think the authors did a good job of just conveying how brutal it was without being like cliched about it in any Mm -hmm. way like we get a lot of examples of all the hardships they have to endure like the fibers are just like sent out into the empire to survive on their own for four years and like if you survive great if not like we didn't want you anyway Mm mm-hmm And again, through small stories, we hear more like we hear 
the very first week and the kids are basically left in a pen and whoever survives is brought into the school and they're given like very little food and it sounds like several children die at that beginning part but like these these stories and flashbacks are like told in such a way that it feels normal in the conversation with the Mm -hmm. character relationships but yeah you just keep kind of seeing layers of like wow this school is really really terrible (laughs) yeah and like there was the one I think it was a yearling who was given like a desert tarantula and was told like keep it alive and if it dies you die (laughs) which is like so brutal and he was scared of spiders right yeah Yeah, I know but it was just like I feel like we've read so many books where authors try and convey like the brutality of something and they always use the same trope where it's like someone's given a dog or like a puppy and they have to take care of it and in the end they have to kill it like how many times have we read that yeah and so I really liked that Sabah Tahir took the time to come up with unique examples and it just felt very fresh I thought brutal but fresh and it was like both the physical and the like psychological Mm -hmm. effect of all this stuff like there were physically challenging aspects of what they were doing and there were psychologically challenging aspects of what they were doing and you could see through his relationships with people that he did consider his friends and it wasn't like he was the one good one and all the other ones were bad like one of his friends whose brother had tried to escape and was whipped in front of everyone mm. it was just like how you survive this terrible terrible environment especially if you brought in at age six and this is like all you know you really do get like sympathy for these yeah. terrible people even though on the other side, we're seeing Leia's version of things and these masks are like coming in, people are disappearing in the night or, you know, her family was just like slaughtered in front of her. Like, so you're seeing from an outside point of view how terrible mm-hmm. they are, but then you're also seeing how like, not that they don't have a choice because they obviously have a choice, but they're basically limited to a lot of bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I kind of shifted already, but. Yeah, let's, do you want to talk about the characters now? Yeah. Okay. Who's your favorite, Elias or Leia? Ooh. We had to pick. I like them both for different reasons, obviously, and I really like the two perspectives. Like, I feel like they're a nice complement to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Probably Elias. I was going to say Elias, too. But just slightly. Like, I really like them both. Yeah. The thing I liked about Leia is I think in so many YA books, we get this ferocious, strong female character. And we kind of got that with Elias's friend, Helena. Mm-hmm. But... I liked that Leia constantly was doubting herself, constantly felt weak. She felt inferior a lot of the time. She she admitted to herself, yeah, I'm a coward. I'm not brave. I ran away when the masks attacked my house. Yep. And I kind of, I, I liked that because it was just, it was so different from the normal fearless female character that we always get. And it was kind of relatable because that's what I would be like probably. Yeah, absolutely. And especially since like we learned that her parents were in the resistance and you know her mother was this like very formidable figure that she feels like she can't live up to. The lioness. Yeah. The one thing I will say about Leia is that um, I, I think maybe because she was described this way a lot, I had a hard time remembering that she was 17, especially when she was you know friends with Izzy the, the kitchen girl. I kept visualizing them as like 13 year olds and I had I had a really hard time remembering that she was older Hmm. that was my only issue yeah and it it is interesting because we don't see any of her aspirations at all like I get that and it makes sense that wanting to save her brother became her main goal so I didn't question it too much but when I kind of took a step back and I was like if that scene had never happened like what did 
what did she want? I mean, like at 17, you start to, you know, make your own identity a little bit. And it could have been just in line with what, you know, maybe she wanted to marry the boy across the street and right. run the jam business from her grandma or something. Like it didn't have to be something crazy, <laughs> but like I, I just, it felt a little bit weird to me that we didn't have any of like what she gave up besides her family. Yeah. It wasn't like she had a dream that was derailed because all of a sudden she had to go off and save her brother. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And the other thing I just don't like this in books in general is the whole, like, she was so pretty and didn't know it thing that they kept talking about. Yeah. I don't know. I just like that trope, too. Yeah. You do see that a lot. And I feel like they kept talking about it. Like, I'm like, I just wish either she, maybe, like, something unique about her or that she, like, kind of knew that she was pretty or that she was pretty but not, I don't know. I just felt like it was, like, brought up multiple times in a weird way. And I was like, why? Why? Yeah, that's a good point. But then for Elias... I really liked the complexity, I guess, of his character because he is this soldier. We learn his mother is the um, commandant. So his mother is like Mm -hmm. the leader of this army. And in the opening scene, he's trying to desert. (laughs) Like he's trying to leave this army behind and escape. Even though he's a senior skull, he's gone through all the training. And we've seen what happens if you desert and get caught, which everyone has been so far. And to your point, he's like right at the end. He survived 12 years of this. Yeah. And I was just going to say that is, I thought that was so brilliant. I mean, in a terrible way, but like it was such a good way to show the consequences of deserting Mm -hmm. rather than just telling. Because we get that scene where that 10 year old is beaten to death because he deserted. And the entire time you're set up thinking like, oh my God, this is what Elias is planning to do in like two weeks. This could be him. Like it was such a great way to raise the stakes like immediately right, right off the bat. Yep. And again, just like hearing about both his and Leah's backstory and like their parents, because we didn't know that her parents were the resistance leaders until a little bit further in. I guess we figured out his mom was the commandant, but we didn't really understand their relationship immediately. Um, And she hates him, like did not want him. Bad mother, literally trying to kill him. I can't think of a worse mother. But like, okay, let's talk about her because I, she was the other character that (laughs) I was like super fascinated by. I think we're going to learn more about her because right now she is just a monster and I have zero ounce of sympathy for her and I know that we're going to get some, or at least I hope we do, because I don't want her to just be a cruel character for the sake of being cruel. Like there has to be more to her than what we have in the book right now. I agree. And I do feel like we got a glimpse of something in the Mm -hmm. last scene where she visited him in the cell. I mean, not quite sympathy yet, but we sort of can see I think even he said uh, Elias said like I saw like the human side of her and he felt pity for her but like why (laughs) and you want more of that story like who who was did someone rape her who's his dad I feel like his dad is gonna factor in somehow yeah because she hated the father right and she was like I hated you the second I became aware of you because you were a symbol of my failure and so I'm just like, what was this failure? Yeah, who was his dad? Like, I guess I did get a little bit of sympathy for her when she, when she was talking about Elias's grandfather and how, you know, she was like the most elite student at the school and he never even looked at her until he found mm-hmm. out that she had this baby and now he had a male heir. And so you did get that sense of like she has been constantly overlooked because of her gender and all of a sudden, like, this baby that she gave birth to has now surpassed her. And, like, the grandfather just cares about Elias now. But there has to be something more because she's so evil. Like, Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I do not accept that there's not more to her. because There is more to it. She's just, I don't think I've ever met a more brutal, disgusting character than her. Well, and she, I mean, this doesn't 
redeem anything really at all. But we do find out that she did not literally abandon him like in the sand and walk away. She, at least for a moment, wanted to save his life and like left him in the tent of his foster mom, but then tried to come back and (laughs) tried to come back and kill him. So I mean, like that doesn't redeem her, but but she's not 1000% evil. There are these specks of stuff that have occasionally broken through so I'm curious to see when she was more human what that was like and how she got this far down the road because we also see so the other thing that she is part of like when we've been spying on her and by we I mean Leia uh is she's like canoodling with the night bringer whatever the evil the demon yeah and I'm curious how she got into that like if it's like some kind of selfish she wants power thing or if she like made a deal with the devil that has gone off the rails or if like I feel like there's more to that story too of how she and the Nightbringer became connected yeah that's a very good question and you know what I'm gonna say what (laughs) about the demons I know you love demon stories (laughs) I hate them so much (laughs) so okay so you were further into this than I was when we started realizing that there were real supernatural demon creatures mm-hmm. in this book and you texted me and I got really nervous but it and I don't know if part of it was because my expectation changed when you told me that but it didn't bother me as much as it sometimes does because it felt relatively small still so far yeah it is small and I'm glad about that yeah I just feel like every book we've read lately has had this like supernatural demon element and I just don't think the book needs it. Like, I feel like if it didn't have have that element, it would still be just as exciting and interesting. And like, even more so because there's no magic. It's just people being human and and being awful and terrifying. Like, I don't think the Commandant needed to be in, in cahoots with a demon to make her worse. Like, she was already bad enough on her own. So I just, I don't know what it's going to add to the story. For me personally, I could do without it. <laughs> Yep. And I would agree. I haven't, I've almost been glad that it's been a small part and it's not like a big thing, but I feel like it's going to get bigger because we also had the cook tell that story about the, what, Mm -hmm. the scholars tried to conquer the, was it the djinn? Mm Mm-hmm. And the Nightbringer slash the leader of the gen escaped and like brought the empire upon them. And his goal is to like eliminate the scholars completely. And that's who she's working. So I do like that we're getting at least some motivation for the supernatural creatures. But I also agree, especially that second trial where they were just like, hey, no one believed in them. So or Mm -hmm. very few people believed in them. So it wasn't even it's just I'm not on either side strongly yet I'm glad that it's been small I'm a little bit hesitant to see it become too big but I'm also I'm kind of intrigued to see where it goes as soon as Leia started speaking to the shadows or like the Uh shadows started speaking I was like no 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 don't be letting this happen well she thought it was like shock at first and I was like okay maybe it is shock but I'd already gotten your text and I was like no (laughs) that's what I was like I was like please just let her be hallucinating and just be her guilt talking (laughs) Um, but okay, I did like the augers though, and I thought like mm-hmm. that made sense to me, and that was fine. And I really enjoyed them being part of it. So the augers are like this group of prophecy makers who like can kind of read minds, but that's like a very simplistic way to describe it. It's like really a lot, a lot harder than that. Um, and they can't die, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I like didn't mind that supernatural side of it. I thought that was a really cool uh, inclusion. I really am starting to like Kane a lot. Oh, really? <laughs> and that's actually weird for me because I usually don't like prophecy type stuff because right. of how it can be interpreted. But I feel small enough. 
I, I'm like liking it surprisingly more than I expected because usually if someone's like oh this is like what your fate is and it can be interpreted all these different ways and people like it was kind of bothering me when he was assuming certain things about his soul mm-hmm. and his body being free or what I don't know oh Elias's yeah yeah but I I kind of came around to like oh I kind of like how tricky this guy is I don't know yeah I like how he kind of like has been leading Elias to his destiny whatever that is and I think it's interesting how um, Helena is playing into it, too, at this moment. Because if I had to pick a favorite character in this entire book, it would be Helena. Interesting. Okay. I think she is so complex and messy and, like, intriguing to me. Because, Mm -hmm. so she is Elias's best friend. She's another student, a skull at this military academy. Another aspirant. Yes, Mm -hmm. she's also, like, in this competition to become the next emperor. And uh, she has a lot of loyalty to the Empire. And she's kind of like the soldier who obeys without question. And she has very um, patrician ideas when it comes to the social classes, right? So, like, when Leia is a slave and she is uh, working for the Commandant, Helena's, like, very dismissive of her. She's like, oh, she's just a slave. Slaves die all the time. Like it's okay for her to be beaten and treated terribly because she's a nobody. Mm-hmm. She kind of accepts the Kool-Aid. Or yeah, whatever. she totally mm-hmm. drank the Kool-Aid. But on the other side, she also really cares about Elias. And like we have these kind of moments where she hints at sharing his belief that this system is really messed up. But she is like very unwilling to like jeopardize her own loyalty yep I agree I think she's really interesting and I am hopeful that we'll see more of her in the next book as well especially now that she's sworn by the end of this book she's sworn an oath to the new emperor which is Marcus who's like bad news the worst guy in the generation you know I mean like he's he's no commandant but he's a he's a sick rapist sociopath yeah Yeah. (laughs) and it's assumed that he's going to send her after Elias to kill him yeah at some point right so i'm curious to see how that all plays out because she's been told and she really believes in the augurs she's been told if she swears loyalty and uh, obeys the emperor whoever it is and now it's marcus that elias will survive but it's like so interesting because she literally was like an axe to his neck in front of people ready to execute him but like had so much trust in this mm-hmm. auger group that she did that openly willingly because she thought he would survive and he did <laughs> but it's yeah. kind of wackadoo I love the layers to it yeah I think just the awfulness of like them being so close but yet being in so many situations where they have to kill each other yep. or like they're they're tested like the last trial of or no the second to last trial the third one yeah the battle of strength oh. where that was truly one of the most terrible things I've ever read like they set them against each other so like Helena led had to lead a platoon and then Elias had to lead a platoon and the augurs were like all right whoever what was it it was like you were either defeat or be defeated but they said if you like show any mercy there will be consequences so at first they both say like you know maim don't kill or whatever because everyone their whole group they're friends they're all classmates and all friends and and uh as they try to like not give death blows or whatever they 
start like choking like magic is happening to like kill them on their own side so then it's like okay i guess you have to kill them it's just i mean impossible choices it's crazy that's a good way to put it um because like if if you try to avoid killing your friends you will die yourself and so at the end they both give orders and your friends on your side will die so your, your friends are dying regardless of the choice you make no matter what and so then they both like give the order to start killing each other and like elias almost kills Helena and, like, would have, except for the fact that she was wearing armor and, like, broke the rules. Yep. Marcus kills his brother, which was huge. His twin brother, yeah. And Zach was, like, the only one who was sort of keeping Marcus sane. Like, I think he was really the only person that Marcus truly loved. I was really intrigued to see more of Zach and their relationship, to be honest. I wonder if we'll get any flashbacks to that. I do think Marcus is going to be haunted by that at some point, though. I hope so. I mean, even just to show that he's a little bit more human. Uh, But I love complex characters, and I like characters who are messy and... Um, Mm -hmm. like not super straightforward so I I mean this is a great book for that everyone is a little bit evil and a little bit good yeah I would say that the characters I feel like we know a lot of even secondary characters pretty well I mean I would love more information on everyone but I'm not feeling that same sense that I usually feel where I'm like I need all the details Um, I mean, obviously, I like want Cook's backstory, and I hope Mm -hmm. we still get it, even though she hasn't shared it. But it also felt true to her character that we haven't gotten it yet. It's not that Saba forgot to write it. It's like, no, part of her backstory is that she's not sharing it, right? Right. And I'm so curious to learn what that is, because she used to be with the Resistance, and she's the one who is like, kind of warning Leia, don't trust this Resistance. Rightly so. Yeah, and like, your mother maybe isn't who you thought she was. So yeah, I, I like that not knowing if the goodies are the goodies like the resistance seems like it's uh quite problematic as well yeah they've got their own issues to work through and they're down on numbers and they have all these factions and yeah they're split Mm -hmm. we have like one of the leaders keenan who gets pretty close to leia and does want to try to help free her brother but he's led by another another man, Mazin, who basically keeps telling Leia that he knows where her brother Darren is and he's going to help her if she does X, Y, Z. But in the end, we learn that he has been lying to her this entire time. And I love, though, I mean, it wasn't good that he was lying, but I love that he was like, I kept giving you impossible tasks. Yeah. And he didn't acknowledge it in his speech, but it's like, and you kept rising to the occasion. Like, he was literally trying to give her things that were, like, so impossibly ridiculous that he'd check the box of, like, making a deal, but she either wouldn't survive or definitely wouldn't succeed. But she did. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, like, that's pretty amazing. But it, it, but it's so awful that he did that. Like, he basically was like, yeah, I, I knew I didn't have men or resources to help you so I just wanted to get you out of my way I mean yeah he's he's a bad guy for sure but I do I love the layer especially like the Mm -hmm. political layers of it all like I'm really interested in more of the resistance and even like who is the traitor who turned on her parents yeah and who is the traitor who's been letting the commandant know that she was a spy or like there's a lot of betrayal in that group there's a lot going on with like I guess the emperor's dead now, but still the politics kind of happening in the official realm as well are a lot of transition. And I do, I love the, the layers of like political intrigue in here as well. Well, we have so much more to learn too. Cause like we learned, didn't we learn that the commandant killed, was the one who killed Leia's parents? We don't know who betrayed them. Correct. Yes. She's the one who killed them. Yeah, so I'm just like, I really want to know more about Leia's parents and like their role within the resistance. And Cook, and Sana, and Mm -hmm. Mazen, and yep. 
And I also hope that we see Darren in the next book. So he's been, I guess he was in the first scene technically, but he's been like Leia's, um, you know, North Star throughout this whole thing. Ability she's had, the courage she's found, has all been trying to save her brother. And we also find out he was working with this blacksmith guy or forger, Spiro Telemann, and wanting to make weapons for the scholars so that they could fight back because... Ultimately, the reason they succumbed to the Empire was because they had some, like, steel that they couldn't fight against, right? Right. But I feel like Darren has a big destiny, too, and I'm really curious if we do free him in the next book, like, if he'll play a bigger role. Maybe he'll, like, die in the next book and he'll always just be, like, a motivator, but I hope we get to actually see him and get to know him a little bit better because I feel like he's also an interestingly complex character because she thought he was, like, pulling away from the family and then she finds out that he actually, like, kind of was on the same mission of her parents of freeing the scholars and he felt like a good big brother. I don't know. I'm just Mm -hmm. curious to hear more. I'm going to see him more as well, for sure. Um, The other really big question I have is, I'm going to keep coming back to Helena because she's my favorite. But um, <laughs> Helena has this power Oh yeah. that I really want to learn more about. So she can sing and heal people, which is a little bit scary because the Marshalls, the Marshall Empire, they believe that like supernatural powers come from spirits of the dead and only the augurs have that power. But Helena now is able to cure people. And there is a scene where she does cure Leia, who's like, about to die and she actually heals her and like drains herself in the process to like bring Mm -hmm. her back to life yeah i'm curious what the cost truly is too yeah Mm -hmm. and also just like if that will come back and haunt her because she did hint that like if anyone found out about this she would be accused of witchcraft and it would not end well for her and at some point at one point elias even like uses that as blackmail against her i know that hurt me i mean it was effective but it, yeah, that was a low blow, man. But it, but it was so interesting because, like, she had such a low blow too because she was gonna turn yeah. Leia and Izzy in. Yeah, no, for when sure. She catches them sneaking out, and she was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna take him, and they'll be punished." And, and that's what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. it's just, ugh. Um. Okay, what do we feel about the romance situation? Okay, it's kind of bothering me, but it's not so bad that it's like really <laughs> turning me off. Okay. But I feel like people's love interest just changes based on what works for the scene right now. Oh. Because Leia's like kind of torn between Elias and Keenan, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's kind of torn between her and Helena. Mm-hmm. Kind of. But Helena's like really in love with Elias and Keenan is like really in love with Leia. Yeah, and I sort of buy the Helena one more because they've been friends for so long and all of that. Keenan, I'm sort of like, why did you just decide that you, like, really like this girl? Is it because she's pretty? Like, I still want to know more. I mean, I guess they did share this, like, oh, we both lost our families and we're so similar, but. And her parents saved him. Remember her dad saved yeah. Keenan when he was a boy? That's not a reason to fall in love with the daughter. That's, True. like, a reason to help her. But it's a reason to be, like, infatuated with her, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just see like weird triangles happening that I'm not going to love, mm. but they haven't fully happened yet. So I'm not like, I'm just like hesitantly, where are you going with this? I think is where I'm at. How are you feeling about them? Um, The thing that I really liked was I wasn't sure who was going to end up with who. Yeah. For, for a lot of the time, because like my instinct was to be like, oh, Leia and Elias, like they're the main characters. Like they're the ones who are going to get together in the end. But then when we introduced Helena and like, I just think her romance with Elias is so sad and so different. Like, I I love the fact that, like, they are friends. And at first I was excited because I was like, oh, it's so great to, like, 
have a friendship between a man and a woman mm-hmm. without it being romantic. Like I thought they were just going to be friends. So at first when she, when they, there was that hint of romance, I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. But then I, I actually ended up really liking it because I like how complicated it is and how Helena yep. is like, do you think I wanted to feel this way? Like falling in love with you was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. I hate it. I hate everything about it. It's torture. I did love that scene. Yeah. That monologue. Mm-hmm. And just like you can feel their pain of like, they mean so much to each other as friends that they almost wish like these feelings didn't come between them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of, at that point I was like, I don't know, maybe Elias is going to end up with Helena. Um, but the way the author kind of ended this book, I got a very clear feeling that like Leia doesn't feel as strongly about Keenan as he does about her and the same with Elias and Helena. Yeah, but I also feel like they don't know each other well enough that I'm not exactly rooting for them yet either. Leia, who? Leia and Keenan or Leia and Sorry, Elias? Leia and Elias. Oh, okay. Uh, honestly, Leia and anyone. Leia doesn't yeah. know anyone well enough to be in love. But um, <laughs> but I don't know. I just, like, I almost even liked kind of what you were saying about people helping each, or like being friends without being romantic interests. I almost liked Elias and Leia, like, helping each other because they like realized that they were making assumptions about mass or slaves or whatever. And there were more, more to them than that, than it, than like some weird, not weird, but some instant attraction love thing. At least they had that one night where they bonded. So I'm a little bit more on board now, but I don't know. Yeah. It was sort of insta love. It was kind of like, I see you now and I'm attracted to you. The end. <laughs> but I do, I'm, I'm curious to see it play out a little bit more. And if it's done well, I think I'll get on board with it. I do think Helena's love for Elias is the best relationship dynamic so far for the four of them. I would agree. Um, okay, did you have a favorite scene? Ooh, yes. I know you asked me this and I don't. I don't even know what I would pick. I feel like if we do our old version of like, what would you want to see on screen? I feel like everything was just... Like, the cool parts to see were also so violent in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I loved a lot of the political intrigue and relationship stuff, but I don't know that those would be, like, great TV or necessarily a favorite scene part. Mm-hmm. I don't know. My favorite was the first trial, the trial of courage. I was almost going to say when Elias is in the death fields yeah. and stuff, and then Helena comes up, and then they get attacked. Yeah, because... They like I liked the idea of like they both kind of woke up in these unfamiliar places. Like Elias wakes up in the Great Wastes and Ellen and Helena wakes up in a vulture's nest, like on the top of a mountain, and they have to like escape from that and find each other. And then I just really liked I was so nervous for them because we learned that like at the start of the trials, like whoever wins the most trials gets to be Emperor and whoever comes in second place gets to be the blood strike. But then the other people will die and it was like if you lose even one trial you'll die like that's the penalty you you don't just lose yeah if you're not back to this tower yeah you're dead. so <laughs> that was the thing they were like you have to get back to this tower by this time and just like this scene of um Elias like carrying Helena on his back and like trying to get it to the clock tower on time and like the bells are chiming and he's running out of time mm-hmm. that was like so entertaining and stressful for me at the same time like I really liked that I also really liked the moon festival like I just it was a, mm. we didn't get a ton of detailed description about what it looked like but just the atmosphere of it seemed like really beautiful and joyful and like I don't know seeing Izzy out for the first time but also knowing the risks but then I don't know like the music and the dance seeing it from Izzy's eyes I think would have been cool what was one of my favorite yeah. scenes too and then that was sort of the first time where we start to be like, okay, maybe, or where Leia starts to be like, okay, maybe 
she can't figure out his motivation. Elias? Yeah. Up to that point, she's still convinced he's, like, trying to... Tr- I guess she still kind of does anyways, but that was sort of the first time where she started to really trust him, I think. There's a lot happening. <laughs> there is. I thought the pacing was really good. Um, I agree. There weren't, like, a ton of slow moments. I think there was, like, enough time to learn and get familiar with the characters while also being like a lot of good action. And I felt like the two different perspectives were distinct enough. I wasn't getting super confused while we switched perspectives and stuff like I sometimes do with multiple narrators. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, okay. How about research? What did you research for this book? Okay, I don't... I'm still just like in a weird research phase. I don't know. I didn't want to research anything about demons. Mm-mm. And I was kind of intrigued by what sparked at least Leia's events in the story was her brother sketchbook being revealed where he had sketches of the forge and then we realized that it was Telemann's forge and like there was some other stuff going on and he feels guilty and is maybe mm-hmm. you know there's a lot going on there but I was kind of like what's so hard about figuring out how a forge works <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know how a forge works, but I just was kind of thinking about that. So I did a little bit of research on blacksmithing. So I okay, I uh, read a little bit about working with iron, a primer on blacksmithing. And I thought this is actually really interesting. I guess 150 years ago, most census records showed that a fifth of the respondents listed their occupation as blacksmith. So like 20% of the population 150 years ago were blacksmiths. It was like the thing to do. Um, And they were making literally everything, not just like horseshoes or whatever you might originally think of. They were like the people who did all of the things. Um, And there are three H's that have remained relatively unchanged, according to this author, from the olden days that are important for... Three three H's of working a forge? Yes, of being a blacksmith. Can I guess what they are? Yes, please do. Heat? Heating? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, 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 hitting? Yep, hitting. Wait, really? Yep, heating, hitting. What's the third one? Okay, now I really want to get the the last one. Um, uh, I want to say there has to be something about, like, cooling it into shape, but I don't know what that H would be. Like, quenching? No, not quenching. Think about how important it is to, like, hit accurately. What do you have to do to make sure? (laughs) Holding. That's the last one. Heating, holding, and hitting are the the three most important H's of blacksmithing (laughs) in this very simple uh, overview. Okay. And guess how hot it gets when you're working with, like, welding heat tools, steel stuff. Um, actually, I think I will know this because I write copy for a living for an industrial supply company and we have raw materials. I forgot about Um, that. Um, so steel... Steel could be, I want to say, like, 1,100. This author said 1,400 degrees. So you were pretty close. All right, that's not that bad. He says you can go a little bit hotter or a little bit colder, depending on what you're doing, but he likes to keep it right around 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, Let's see. So there's four things you really need to have in order to do blacksmithing. One is a thing to heat your work. Okay. One is a thing to hold your work. One is a thing to put under your work. Mm-hmm. And one is a thing to apply forces to your work. So this is kind of in line with that heat hold mm-hmm. hit thing. But if you're... So you need a forge to, to heat things. They need fuel and air and usually a lot of both. So propane, forge with a fan are kind of common. Uh, 
coke forge is another common thing. Coke is a material made from coal, apparently. Yeah, my dad works in a coke plant, actually, in Pennsylvania. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. That was his job for a time. So you, this might not, this might be even too basic for (laughs) for someone with your background, Marissa. (laughs) You know our raw materials, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) For a thing to hold your work, you might need tongs or vices or clamps. The words of advice are if you can't hold it, you can't hit it. So Mm. uh, you'll want different shapes and sizes to hold different types of, you know, material or or size work. Um, The thing to put under your work, like stereotypically at least, is an anvil. And then a thing to hit your work. So the common thing there would be like some kind of hammer. And again, there's a lot of shapes and weights and styles of hammer, depending on what you're trying to do. There's a lot of different types of shaping metal work. Three fundamental ways are drawing out, which is hitting the metal on all four sides again and again until it like becomes a longer piece. Hmm. Upsetting. This is applying a force to the end of a piece of work to mushroom the metal out to add volume to a piece. Hmm. So if you like have a chisel with heft on one end of it, you'd be upsetting the piece to make that like mushroom part on the end. Or, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, I think it's pining, but it has an E-P-E-I-N-I-N-G. And this is when you apply force from a certain direction, and basically, like, if you imagine that you, like, karate chop a piece of clay, and it spreads away from your hand, like, parallel to that axis, it's kind of similar. So, like, when you are pining, you're hitting, and it, like, spreads in the other directions on that same plane. Yeah. Um... But yeah, they said a lot of people think it's just about like hitting really, really hard. But it's more important than the strength of how you hit is how much control you have while you hit it. Okay. So while it's true that you need to get it hot and hit it hard, the trick to really being a good blacksmith is that you hit it hard as accurately as you want. That makes sense. And he also said there are no mistakes because unlike wood, if you like cut it too small, if you botch up a piece of metal, you just wait and like reheat it and try again. (laughs) Reheat it. So I thought that was kind of cool. Again, not super detailed, but I, I really didn't know much about blacksmithing at all. And I had no idea how common it was. I guess I like knew blacksmithing was a thing back in the day, but I didn't realize it was like 20%. Well, yeah, because if you think about it, like anything that was metal back then, which like a lot of things were. Yeah, almost everything. Yeah. Or, yeah. It was like wood and metal were the main two things, Everything right? from like your spoons to... Yeah, your horseshoes and swords, and I could see it being profitable, honestly. That's that's a little bit of research I did. This article is actually written in a pretty uh, friendly way. It's from theartofmanliness.com, so it's kind of humorous in, in style, but I, I did learn something. So what about you? What did you research? Um, so I was really into Blackcliff Military Academy mm-hmm. and just how disciplined it was and all of the rigorous training that had to go into you know, becoming a skull. So I researched some of the most intense training programs of elite military forces. Oh man. Any that start at age six? No. I mean, probably back in like ancient (laughs) Sparta or whatever, I'm sure. In Rome. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, When people didn't live past 12 anyways. Okay. I started researching the Navy SEALs. So the U.S. Navy SEALs, Britain's SAS, and then the Russia um, military group, the Spetsnaz. But then I kind of streamline that into just the Navy SEALs. So basically, like, those are, like, three very elite military forces that are well-known, and they spe- mm-hmm. they basically specialize in, like, covert operations, sabotage, assassination, spying. You basically have to be good at all the things, right? Everything. Everything you can imagine you have to be good at. So a lot of their training focuses on tracking and patrolling, 
firearms training, long-range marksmanship, field medical training, knife fighting and throwing, wildness survival, climbing and rappelling, diving and underwater combat, Ooh. which, yeah, I know, that was really exciting to me until I, like, used my brain and realized they meant, like, submarines. At first I was oh. like, how did, like, knife fight underwater or something? That's exactly <laughs> what I was picturing, too. <laughs> Just, like, jumping into the ocean and, like, I don't know. Okay. Um, Airborne and parachute training, explosives and demolition, counterterrorism, language training, and interrogation. Okay, I mean, I could never ever be a Navy SEAL for a thousand reasons. No. But wouldn't it be so cool to learn all of those skills? (laughs) I mean, some of them sound pretty interesting. Like the wilderness survival, I think would be pretty cool. And especially like the, um, not assassination, but like sabotage and spying sounds pretty interesting. Even like tracking and stuff sounds kind of cool. The interrogation part sounded terrible um i was like researching a little bit about the russia training and i like went down some crazy forms describing it it's like very top secret but someone said that soldiers so they're meant to learn how to withstand interrogation and also deliver it i guess but they said one of the craziest things was soldiers are required to lie down while a burning cinder block is put on their chest and then broken with a sledgehammer. Hmm. But why would they have to do that? Because they think that's what the enemy is going to do to them? I think it's just like teaching them not to crack under torture. I did think, coming back to the book for just one second, it was interesting when Cook was telling Leia, like, you don't know what you'll say if you're truly tortured. Like, it doesn't matter what you want. You don't know what your limits are. So true. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could not withstand torture. I'd confess to anything you want me to say, probably. Oh, absolutely. But so then I kind of focused on like the Navy SEALs and like the training they have to go under. Um, So it takes about a year and a half, at least a year and a half from boot camp. I was going to say that's it? At least. Do you have to be, you've probably, what do you have to do to get into that training program? Okay. Before you can even be accepted, first of all, you have to be between the ages of 17 and 28. If you're older than 28, you need a special waiver, <laughs> which like just, I don't know, it makes me laugh because like 28 seems so young to me. And it does. It's too old to be a Navy SEAL. Uh, so there are usually about a thousand candidates who start out in training every year and then only about 200 to 250 succeed. What happens if you like don't make it? You die. Do you just become like... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Survive or die. Defeat or be defeated. I think you just drop out. Because um, there's there's nine active duty SEAL team stations in more than 30 locations worldwide. So there's like not a ton of them. But yeah, so like I said, you don't have to have a college degree, but you will have to have a mental aptitude and learning ability test. I don't know. I don't know exactly what this is, but you also have to do a computerized special operations resilience test which assesses your mental Hmm. toughness or resilience. Mine's zero. I don't know how (laughs) they do that, but one category is like performance strategies and goal setting and control. Hmm. And then another one is your psychological resistance, meaning your ability to accept situations, handle threats, and like confront challenges. I like love everything about this list of skills, but I have none of them. But I think it's so cool. Yeah, I'm kind of in awe of it, honestly. Um, Physically, in order to even be accepted, uh, here are the physical challenges you have to complete. So you have to be able to swim 500 yards in at least 12 minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, man. You have to be able to do 50 push-ups, 
50 curl-ups, 10 pull-ups, and you have to be able to run one and a half miles in in 10 and a half minutes. Like, that's the max time. And there's also a two-minute time limit for these tasks. Not for, like, the running or the swimming, but, like, you have to be able to do, like, 50 push-ups in under two minutes. I, like, can't even do one push-up properly, so I'm just, yeah, this is fascinating to me. So the training is pretty intense. So like I said, it takes about a year and a half from boot camp to... Graduation? I don't know if it's... It's not even graduation. It's really, like, you are assigned to a SEAL team, and then once you're on a SEAL team and prior to the deployment, there's another year or more of training. And then even once you're on a team and deployed, like, you still train throughout your career. And how old do they, or how long do they typically stay, or do you have any idea? So, Rudolf Bosch retired at 62, and he was the oldest Navy SEAL ever to serve. Um, There were others who retired in, like, their late 50s. What's kind of funny is, I guess if you're over a certain age, you get the title Bullfrog. Ooh. (laughs) But apparently, there's a week called Hell Week, where you are like training really hard physically and you they said you get about four hours of sleep a day during this hell week and there's six stages of training total and you like proceed to the next one and what was interesting is they said a lot of the seal trainers tell you that like as hard as the physical challenges are it's like 90 percent mental just like trying to get through it i do think that's a, i mean i don't know if i believe like 90 percent. that seems high like you have to be able to do to physically do it i guess but like you can't physically do it if you don't mentally think you can do it. I buy that, and I also think that's where I'd be the worst because that's I can't even get through like a forty-five minute workout cl- class mentally. I'm like, ooh, five more minutes. I don't know. I think I should take a break. <laughs> well, I did think of you because part of it is like they have to go do wilderness survival training in Alaska, and I was like, well, Katie did that. She'd pass that test. <laughs> I know when you started the list, I was like, Alaska, knife throwing, diving. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done like half of these things. I'm just kidding. <laughs> curious to see how far I could get you know I know except I also think I would hate every single second of it yeah I mean I don't think I'd enjoy it but part of me is just curious like hey yeah if I if I did this and I like dedicated myself to it like could I do 10 pull-ups I don't know should that be our goal for 2021 should see how many (laughs) seal challenges we can complete but I think it's like I think it's like torture like you don't know what you can do until you actually have to do it like that's fair right now I barely have the motivation to leave my house and go on a little walk every day I mean I told you I can't get through a 45 minute workout class without taking breaks that they didn't promise me um also wait I forget can women be navy seals or is that are they still not allowed um, yeah, so in 2015, the Pentagon made a decision to allow women to serve in frontline ground combat positions, and then a year and a half later, the Navy SEAL program received its first female candidates, and in, it was December 2019, the first woman completed the U.S. Navy SEAL officer test, so she made it past, like, the two weeks of, like, physical and mental screening, and um, she was the first woman to do that. She wasn't identified. Um, I think I heard, like, a long time ago that women couldn't or women hadn't or something, and I was like, oh, well, wouldn't that be cool to be, like, the first woman, not only to be a Navy SEAL, but to be, like, the first woman Navy SEAL? But then I thought about, like, for 0.3 seconds, anything involved in it and how I would not be the one to volunteer, so... So First Lieutenant Shane Haver and First Lieutenant Kristen Greist became the first women to complete the Army Ranger training. 
um, which is like some of the most intense training the military has to offer. Um, so no women Navy SEALs yet, but it looks like we're on our way. And again, even just thinking about this book, like think about how much harder it is to also be like the only woman in an environment like that. Like not only do you have to like do all the physical and psychological, mental overcoming of things, but then also like that's another thing I really respect Helena for in this book is being the only girl there and like not having girlfriends to talk and commiserate with and like having the like macho, I don't know, just like even just being in certain meeting rooms as the only female sometimes can be an extra challenge and I can't even imagine in these environments. Yeah, I agree. I was kind of disappointed with that, actually, though, in the book, because um, I thought it was interesting that the augers are the ones who pick all of the students Mm -hmm. to be selected for this school. So, like, Elias was, like, selected to go to this school. He didn't volunteer. And they only pick one girl per graduating class. I thought it was per generation, which I was even curious. Or maybe it is. Yeah. What that meant. Mm -hmm. Because the only other woman is the commandant. And that was one thing that I kind of didn't like. I almost wish that gender didn't play into, like, who could become a soldier and who couldn't. And there was was also a lot of talk between the soldiers themselves of, like, oh, you're being, like, quote-unquote girly. Or, like, Elias talked a lot about, like, his dumb male brain and I just, I kind of wish that it was a little bit more even field in terms of like women being soldiers. And I'm kind of interested to see where it goes in the next three books because I agree with some of the, especially some of the like side comments made. But I thought it was interesting that they chose only one woman per generation. But A, one is like the head of the school, and B, one is now the like second in command to the emperor. So I, I kind of want to know more about how women are treated in this society as a whole or like. Seems pretty bad. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just, I'm kind of curious about it. Because you would think that if you didn't respect women at all, like... Yeah, how did the commandant rise to power? If women are, are like, viewed so, as such weaklings, I guess. But also everyone calls her sir, like, yes sir, no sir, or the commandant. Yeah. I'm actually kind of curious to see if if that continues to be a thing, then we get more context around it, or if it was just kind of for this scene, because they didn't want other girls there for whatever reason, or, you know, for this book. Yeah, I'm interested to learn more too, because right now it did seem like a little inconsistent. Like we did have this woman, the commandant, in such a high position of power, and yet, well, I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just like that's true, like how it happens sometimes. Like even if you do keep women down, like they tend to rise to the occasion. So maybe that's what's happening here. And no one seemed upset that like a girl was one of the four aspirants or anything. True. Yeah. I mean, like she earned her. She was the third ranked or what? Like it's just kind of an interesting dynamic. I feel like there's more to it and I'm actually curious to see if we like get more around the world or like the history behind that or you know maybe that's what she will care about maybe not equality for the classes but maybe equality for gender or something I don't Mm -hmm. know so yeah um all right so we're gonna start the second book yes it is called a torch against the night do you want me to read a little bit about the second novel yes please Okay. Elias and Leia are running for their lives. After the events of the fourth trial, martial soldiers hunt the two fugitives as they flee the city of Sarah and undertake a perilous journey through the heart of the Empire. Leia is determined to break into Kaf, the Empire's most secure and dangerous prison, to save her brother, who is the key to the scholar's survival. And Elias is determined to help Leia succeed, even if it means giving up his last chance of freedom. But dark forces, human and otherworldly... 
work against <laughs> Leia and Elias. The pair must fight every step of the way to outsmart their enemies. The bloodthirsty Emperor Marcus, the merciless Commandant, the sadistic Warden of Koff, and most heartbreaking of all, Helena, Elias's former friend and the Empire's newest bloodstrike. Bound to Marcus's will, Helena faces a torturous mission of her own, one that might destroy her. Find the traitor Elias, Viturius, and the scholar slave who helped him escape and kill them both. Oh, I'm so afraid for Helena. Okay, on my cover for this book, I think she's on it, Helena, along with Leia and Elias. So I'm curious if she gets like a third perspective, because especially if they're, because they're not physically together anymore. Because I'm hoping we still see like what's going on back in the main country. You know, if if our two narrators right now are together and off somewhere, I kind of hope we do get like a peek of what's happening. Yeah, we need someone at home base. All right, I'm excited to keep reading. Uh, Do you have a joke for me this week? Oh, I was worried it was my turn. First of all, Mm -hmm. I can't believe I didn't start out by saying something like, I haven't talked to you all year, because I love New Year's jokes about, like, I've been doing them all week. I've done them at work. I've done them with everyone I've talked to this week, (laughs) but that's okay. Well, now you have a chance to share it on the podcast. (laughs) I mean, that's my big thing. You guys haven't listened to us all year. What slackers? I'm just kidding. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> okay. Why do you need a jeweler on December 31st? I have no idea. To ring in the new year. Oh, jeez. That took me a one. minute. I was like, jeweler? <laughs> okay, got it. What do dogs say on New Year's Eve? I don't know. Woof. I don't get it. It's just what they always say. Oh, my God. Dogs don't... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, I don't have any good ones. The best New Year's jokes, guys, are just in the moment. So, like, before you take your first shower of the year, even if it's January 1 at 8 a.m., you have to tell somebody, I haven't showered all year. You just have to do it. Oh, okay? Man. You're going to be such a good dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch with us and tell us some really bad New Year's jokes, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. I know you guys haven't done it yet this year, so <laughs> we're also on Facebook and Instagram at MNK Talk YA. Yeah, let's get reading. Can't wait. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelphy, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.